Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. You may be seated, thus says God's word. And so last week, we began a series on the Lord's discipline. We talked about how that part of the evidence of the Lord's love for us is the way that he will correct us and, 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 and bring us back to order. We learned that discipline is something to be embraced. It, it's not something to be feared because it's for our good and it results in the increase of holiness in our lives. Discipline, we talked about, is not the same as punishment. Jesus, if you're a believer, Jesus has already taken every single bit of your punishment. There's none left for you to experience, none whatsoever. But discipline is always evidence of God's love. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines the son or daughter whom he loves. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how discipline plays out within the church. The church has been given the responsibility to guard its testimony and to protect the flock from sinful influence. And the exercise of this responsibility to do those two things is called church discipline. Uh, now, th- some questions that we have to ask ourselves when we have this kind of discussion are, what role do the members of the body have in disciplining the church? Kind of a self-discipline type of thing. What offenses bring somebody under the discipline of the church? And what are the boundaries for church discipline? Is it arbitrary? Is there some kind of like uh, just... Just, you know, you know, when we say you've had enough, then you've had enough. No, of course not. We'll talk about that. And when should we escalate a discipline process within the church? So we're going to answer all this stuff. Now, here's what I want to say right up front. This is a huge subject. Absolutely. And there's, I'm warning you right off the top. There's no way I'm going to cover it all. I'm going to give you kind of a flyover. So if you still have questions when we're done, I'm going to be available after church. I'll be happy to answer as many of them as I can. Um, Or if you'd like, we've done this before, you can fill out a question on the prayer side of a white card, leave it in the box, and I'll get back to you later this week with an answer. If you have a really hard question, please do it that way. I'm just kidding. I'll be glad to tackle what I can. Um, But I also want to point you to this. I I try not to point you to too many books, but I, I do want to do this. If you'd like a really complete examination of this topic, really, but, but, but small still, it's, it's really uh, accessible, I want to suggest to you a book uh, by Jonathan Lehman. I'll give you a chance to write that down if you're interested. Jonathan Lehman, and the book is simply called Church Discipline. Now, if you want to, it's not going to offend me if you go to Amazon on your phone and order it right now. It's a good book, so um, you won't offend me if you do that. But, but Church Discipline by Jonathan Lehman, it, it thoroughly explains uh, church government concepts like I said, that I'm just going to fly over today. So 
Um, it, it, probably a lot of your questions will be answered by that little book. Though. I think it's like 140 pages, not, not bad at all. Um, now, although there are many passages in the New Testament, a lot of them, that deal with church discipline, Matthew 18 very clearly, very succinctly defines what Jesus expects in the, in the order, in the discipline of his church. But let me give you some additional guidelines that can be kind of harvested from the rest of Scripture about the exercise of discipline in the church. These are, these are really, really, really important. First, from the initial step to the final steps, church discipline should only ever be exercised in love. Thanks, Paul. should only be operated, only exercised in love. Jesus... In the passage we read, he starts by saying, if your brother sins against you. What does that imply? The first thing we consider before confronting one another is the nature of our relationships. You, to me, as as an elder in the church, you are not subordinates, your brothers and sisters. You, to each other, are not more spiritual and less spiritual people. You're brothers and sisters. There's a relational bond that joins you, not a hierarchical bond. Are you following me? It's relational. So love has got to be the first thing. None of us are called to police the church. What we're doing through church discipline is we're promoting and we're reinforcing unity, the bond of peace and the spirit of love. That's what what we're doing through church discipline. Second, discipline must never originate, going back to that hierarchical thing, it should never originate from superiority but from humility. We don't confront anyone because we're the pope, the priest, the pastor, the elder, the deacon, the life group leader, the disciple, or the teacher. We never do that. But rather, because we, when, when someone is confronted, it should be because we all are fellow sinners, and all of us should desire above everything else the spiritual flourishing of every single member of the body. That's what should motivate us. Galatians 6.1 puts this perfectly. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it's pretty wide, isn't it? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you're going to dish it out, if you're going to be the, 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 the big you know, holiness sheriff of everyone else, you better darn well be willing to accept discipline for your own faults. Amen? Lastly, all correction should be done, and this is really important, should be done in community. Now, I don't just mean that, that uh, you know, others should be involved with us in the later stages. We'll talk about that later. But it's the health of the body and the integrity of the message that is to motivate us to lovingly correct each other and to lovingly receive correction. We never correct. Listen carefully. This is about being in community. We never correct just because our feelings are hurt. We never correct just because things weren't originally handled according to our preferences. We don't correct, in order, but, but we, just, we do correct, rather, in order to protect the unity of the saints and to adorn the gospel we proclaim with beauty. And with that in mind, let's examine what Jesus has taught on the subject of church discipline. Beginning right at the passage we read, he says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Jesus asserts that where people are living in community, a family, a church, a neighborhood, that where people are living in community, offense will invariably occur. Now, is anyone brave enough to raise your hand and say, hey, I've noticed that. I've noticed that in my home, offense sometimes happens. Ginger, hands down, hands down. 
In our church, I've noticed that offense sometimes occurs. Jesus is saying, don't be surprised by that. When people join Northridge Life Church, over and over again, I've told them that, I say, welcome aboard. You will now have the opportunity at some point guaranteed to forgive one or many of us. I promise you that. But here's the other side of that coin. I also assure them that we are looking forward to the opportunity to forgive them as well. Because that's how it works. None of us are perfect. All of us are fallen. So just brace yourself if this is surprising to you. We will offend you at some point, And you're going to offend us at some point. But the bond of love through the, what Christ has done for us should be enough for us to, to be able to get through that. As I said, Jesus begins with this, this explanation of this process of church discipline with friction between brothers, not sworn enemies. And he places the obligation of the one who is offended to approach the other party when things go wrong. In other words, you don't just fold your arms and wait for them to come and make it right. Jesus says, you go to them. When we're in the body, you can't just take the attitude, well, they know what they did. That's never going to work among believers. Never. It's your obligation. Jesus places it firmly on your shoulders to go and make it right. Notice that he doesn't say, go and tell all your friends about the other's fault. But what he does say is go and tell them between you and him alone. Jesus, listen to me. Jesus wants the circle of communication when there's conflict, when things go wrong, when there's sin. He wants the circle of communication to be kept as small as possible for as long as possible. And if you come to me, I'm telling you, any of the elders would, would say the same thing. If you come to me with a grievance against any other member of this body, the first thing I promise you, I guarantee you, I'm going to ask you is, have you spoken directly to them about it? And until the answer is yes, and this is what happened, then I'm not interested. I don't mean that to be ugly or mean or, or you know, put off. It, it, Jesus has already put the responsibility on all of us to do the, the initial contact. Amen? Amen? And that's where it all starts. So also notice that he doesn't say on that note, thank God, he doesn't say, send your pastor to him. It clearly says that you're to go to him. You're responsible to attempt the restoration of peace. So every believer bears responsibility for working for order in the body of Christ, not just the leaders. All of us, as it says a couple times in the Bible, must seek peace and pursue it. After you speak to them, if they humbly respond, either in repentance or maybe explaining what you might have misunderstood, Jesus says, congratulations, you have gained your brother. Again, the restoration of unity, not punishment, not revenge, that is the goal of our loving correction. It's always to have things restored, not, th- not to make people pay. Amen? Okay, Jesus moves on to a second level. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus understands that relationships are hard. Anybody else agree with Jesus on this? They're difficult, aren't they? Wow. Wow, man, I remember when Ginger and I fell in love, and I thought, my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to ever get done with all the running through fields of daisies and collapsing in each other's arms that are going to happen. And then we were married for about a week, and I was looking for a field of daisies. True story, honest to God, true story. Some of you have told you this. We had our first married, knock down, drag out fight. 
no kidding, five days into our marriage, in the parking lot of Focus on the Family in Colorado Springs. I kid you not. We were ready to rip each other's hearts out in the, in the parking lot. And we were so terrified that James Dobson was going to look out the window from his office and go, I've failed, I've failed, I've failed. Jesus understands that relationships are hard. And, so, and Ginger did apologize for what she did that day. So um, can I get a ride home with anybody? Like, Ginger understand, uh, Jesus understands rather that relationships are hard. And sometimes repentance doesn't happen immediately. If there is no repentance, Jesus says that we are to take one or two others with us. And the goal is still, watch this, to keep the circle of communication as small as possible for as long as possible. This is not so we can gang up on somebody. We're not going to saying, all right, all right, you don't listen to me? All right, I'm taking Dave and Daryl, and we're going to go, and we're going to have ourselves a, a, a showdown here. No. It, the reasons that we do this is twofold. This is, we're, not making them, we're not just trying to twist their arm until they submit. There's two reasons why we do this. First, if the offense is well known, if this is pretty, pretty public, the other two people, one or two people, can join you to lovingly plead with the other person for repentance. What I have found is that they, the other person that you bring with you may have a grace or favor with the other person that you don't have. It's amazing. And, 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 and they may have that grace. And they may be able to touch their heart and persuade them to repentance more effectively than you can. Second, if the offender doesn't understand or even acknowledge that there was an offense, the others can help you by hearing the story from both sides and they can bring additional wisdom, third-party wisdom, that they're not so emotionally involved in it. Sometimes, listen to me, this is a tough one, Sometimes being in community requires us all to admit that we don't always see things clearly. I may think you're really guilty of an offense, and Dave might come to me and say, well, Mark, I don't think this is what you think it is. And thank God for Dave if he can do that. Amen? We don't always see things clearly. And what we perceive as an offense isn't one at all. It may simply be a misunderstanding. It may be a violation of my preferences. It may even be a wounding of my pride or my ego. Can you believe that can happen in church? And maybe that's what's made me feel offended. But the clarification that, that the second and third person might bring is what, is what is meant with that reference to letting every charge be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The Old Testament says no one can be convicted on the testimony of a lone witness. Then Jesus raises the bar a little bit more. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. After the evidence has been firmly established and both a private and a small group appeal has been unsuccessfully made for repentance, the circle widens to communication with the larger body. That doesn't mean that I get up here and say, all right, guys, i got to let you know what Shermon did. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what that means. And it also doesn't mean that you're now cleared, oh, they didn't listen to me, they didn't listen to Dave, they didn't listen to Mark. Now I can tell everybody and gossip all about them. Jesus said so. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. It doesn't mean that you're now cleared to gossip about a brother or sister, but rather that the elders of the church should be informed as those who have spiritual oversight over the local body of those who will be held accountable, we've talked about this before, by God for the spiritual oversight of the body. And this gives the leadership the opportunity to join their voices to your appeal to the offender to repent. And say, hey, listen, we want you to make it through this. And we're begging you in the name of Jesus to repent. 
And that adds the weight of their God-given authority. And, and, and they're able, because the Bible says they're required to be able to teach, maybe they can even teach clearly what the Scriptures say about each particular case that comes up. And in some cases, unfortunately, depending on several factors, such as the severity of the sin or the unwillingness to repent, the elders may make a decision to inform an even larger group in the church for the protection and the purity of those in the body. But even at this late stage, this is what I want you to get, even at this late stage in the process, there's constant prayer and there's constant hope for the restoration of the errant brother or sister that God would compel their hearts. We never give up the hope for repentance. We never give up the hope for repentance. We never just you know, wipe our hands clean of someone for whom Christ died. We never give up the hope for repentance. But Christ goes on to say, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This speaks of the final, most severe, and quite honestly, most often misunderstood phase of church discipline, which is excommunication. Most of us think of excommunication as being kicked out of the church or shunned in some kind of Amish sort of ceremony. That's not at all what that means. Though there are times when someone must be prohibited from our services, think of a practicing child molester or a wife beater or something like that, let's try to better understand what is meant by excommunication. So excommunication, Jesus defines it as considering someone to be equal to a Gentile and a tax collector. That's probably not real familiar language to us or or the meaning of it. So let's kind of consider for a second what that means. To Jesus' first century audience, the people that he was talking to, a Gentile is is a clear designation for someone who is non-Jewish. And being non-Jewish, that means they're outside of the covenant community. They are not a part of the people of God. A tax collector, on the other hand, would be someone who once was a part of the covenant community, but now has betrayed that community in order to do the enemy's dirty work. And they are essentially a traitor. So what does that mean? Jesus is saying to regard people who who absolutely refuse to repent when confronted with their sin as though they were once part of a, of a church community, but now as those who are outside the body, or worse yet, as those who have betrayed their allegiance to Christ and to all that we proclaim and represent. That's hard, isn't it? That's a tough word, isn't it? Jesus does not say when people habitually uh, uh, insist on unrepentance to just let bygones be bygones. He's saying that, as it says, what Paul says in another place in Corinthians, he says, a little leaven, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so Jesus is saying that there are times when you have to say the leaven has to go for the purity of the lump. Therefore, so I want you to understand this. Excommunication isn't just kicking someone out of the church. In most cases, when a church gets to this level of church discipline, somebody can freely come to the services. That's not the problem at all. It's it's a clear, what it is, excommunication is a clear affirmation by the church that based on the evidence that we have, we as the church cannot affirm the genuineness of a person's profession of faith in Christ. We cannot put our stamp of approval on their testimony. Everybody understand that? 
That's what excommunication is. It's, it's ex taking out of communion. It's, it's saying, no, you're not a part of this. We can't acknowledge that you're a part of this. So, and what I'm saying is, is, you know, we can't say, no one in this building can say, this guy's not saved and this guy is. Guess who can do that? God. God's the only one that can do that. But what we can do is we can say, we don't see it. We don't see the evidence. Nothing in your life looks like there's a real uh, uh, profession, a real seeking after the Lord here. So we make this clear by withholding communion, which we're about to take here in a minute. Because this is, communion is a believer's continued proclamation that we've been redeemed and that we're now associated with Christ's body around the world and throughout time. So we say, hey, this is how we identify each other. So if you're not identified with the body, that's why we always say before we take communion, if you're not a believer in Christ, you have no business up here. It's not because we're trying to withhold something from you. This has no meaning to you. Uh, We've used this example before. We borrowed it from somewhere else. But this wedding ring, I could give it to anyone in this room, but but all it would be is a little piece of gold to you. But you know what? This has very deep, significant, resounding meaning for me. Because that woman I fought with in the parking lot of folks on the family with this ring made a commitment to me that even when I was a butthead like that, she wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> Amen, Paul? <Praise> God. <laughs> so it's so the same thing with communion. It's a covenant symbol. It says this means something. So that's why we encourage you. If you're not a believer, you're not sure you're a believer, just don't come. We're not going to judge you for not coming. But... but we, we don't want you to, to get the wrong idea and have some false impression. As I said, we have no authority to say someone's saved or isn't saved. Only God can do that. But we have been. The church has been given the authority to say that we don't see any compelling evidence that you do or do not belong to the people of God. The church affirms people who seem to be true believers by sharing communion. And none of us want to be guilty and stand before God of giving one of you false assurance. I promise you that. Jesus concludes our passage by these familiar words. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if any two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, many of us have heard these scriptures. We've quoted them. And we thought these scriptures pertained to our private prayer lives kind of interpreting something like this, that we, we thought we were to bind curses and loose blessings and to agree with other believers about various prayer concerns and believing that in doing that, that God would respond. And we were assured that if two or three of us gathered together for prayer or coffee or anything else, that Jesus is right there in the middle of us. And I'm not quarreling with any of that. But I do want to point out that none of that interpretive uh, elements are in the text at all. None of that comes from the text, the context of the text. None of it's there. Amen? Y'all are scared to say amen. Where's he going with this? None of that is anywhere in the context of the passage. Jesus is clearly speaking in this passage, even when he says, binding and loosing, agreeing, praying, I'm there in the middle of it, all of that stuff, he's clearly talking about the discipline of his church. He didn't just make a hard left and change subjects. He's telling his followers how to oversee and proceed in the process of church discipline. So based on the context, I think those verses mean something entirely different. I think Jesus is telling us that whatever judgments we as a church prayerfully make, binding on earth, that he is going to confirm in heaven with God's authority. 
I think that he's saying that whatever judgments, whatever uh, uh, things are, are, are on people, whatever judgments are loosed by the church in, on earth are going to be removed in heaven. But remember, the thinking of Christ in this passage from the first verse to the last is communal. This doesn't mean communal is really important. Community is really important. This doesn't mean that any one individual can put any other individual under church discipline. I can't get sideways with you and say, nope, church discipline, that's it. Uh, you know, uh, I'm, uh, you're a Gentile, you're a tax collector, you know, we can't do that. And, and we also can't, you know, if the church comes together as a body and says, hey, we think there's a, a offense serious enough here that we can no longer recognize the profession of somebody's faith, guess what? You can't go around the church and say, nope, we recognize you. You can't do that. You don't have that authority. You can't release what the church is bound, and you can't bind what the church has released. Somebody crank up the heat in here, man. It's a little chilly. But the authority for this, you're thinking, well, Mark, you're just making it sound like the church has a lot of authority. Dadgum right I am. And guess where I get that standpoint? Right from the Bible. Listen to what Jesus tells his, his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension. Listen to this. This is powerful. And probably none of you have ever heard too many messages on this passage. Listen to what Jesus says. John twenty twenty three. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now we think, you know, which is true, Jesus can forgive anybody he wants, but what he's done is he has made the church the, the judicial agency of, of kind of acceptance into the body. And it's a tough, it's a very high responsibility. And guess what? I mean, we already talked about this, but this is not just an elder thing. This is a body thing. This is a body thing. Because like I said, I'm not going to the guy you have a problem with. I'm not going to the lady you have a problem with. We do this together and for each other. And none of us are exempt from either doing it or, having it or, or receiving it. We all do it together. Amen? And Jesus knows that this is a tough task for any church to undertake. So what he does is he promises us his confirming presence when we're obedient in doing it. This tough, tough task of church discipline. He says, for where two or three are gathered in my name... There I am in the midst of it. Now that's so awesome because what Jesus is saying there, he's saying that I don't ever have to worry when there's a tough call to make and you have a tough call to make. We don't have to wonder and say, oh gosh, I hope Jesus is, is, is with us on this. I hope we're not doing something that Jesus wouldn't do. Jesus says, no, if you're in agreement, if the body is in agreement, guess where he is? He's right there in the middle of it, casting his vote, granting his support. But what offenses, so here, so we've established all that, what offenses should bring someone under the discipline of the church? Do we initiate church discipline for every lustful thought, for every unkind word, for every greedy heart? Now we know, we're not going to apologize this, we know we shouldn't ever tolerate sin in any form, in either ourselves or in others, but we should be most concerned with our own struggles. Amen? I don't want anybody walking around here with a clipboard taking notes of my sins. You'll be very busy. You'll get a hand cramp. It'll be terrible. We should be most concerned with our own struggles and less with other people's sins. You guys know this passage. Jesus said, how can you say to your brother? Oh, there's that word again, brother. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Let me just pause right there. Did Jesus ever say anything funnier with a, with a, a mental image of that, with a guy walking around with a redwood sticking out of his eyeball? How can you say, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. 
then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, if I'm walking around with a log, out of my, a log in my eye and I'm trying to get the splinter out of your eye, you know what I am? I'm a hypocrite. But if, by the grace of God, the log has been removed and I notice there's a little something in your eyes, here, let me help you with that. You know what I am? I'm someone that's bringing unity to the body. I'm helping you become more what God wants you to be. Let me make this clear if you didn't know. If you didn't know, you hadn't been gone here very long, but we are all fallen. Every one of us. Every stinking one of us. From the pulpit to the back row. So if every offense resulted in excommunication, guess what? We'll just lock the door. No one's coming to church next Sunday. All of us have pesky, recurring sins. And while we should speak into each other's lives, and we should challenge each other on even the smallest of offenses, the later stages of church discipline are most likely reserved for a different class of sins from the common daily failures we all face. The first thing to consider in church discipline, before we kind of break it down further, is this. What is the level of repentance? Because like I said, we all have pesky things. So if, if, there is, if there's something in my life and, and you see me and I'm really struggling to kind of defeat this thing and I'm, I'm struggling to believe and put my confidence in Jesus, that doesn't give you the right to start you know, swinging your, your sword. But if I'm doing it with absolute justification, I'm saying, hey, you, know, you can't judge me and I can do what I want and you know, all this stuff, then that may be caused to escalate church discipline. Because the issue is always how much repentance are we seeing towards the thing. So let me break down a few things to kind of help you to understand what's, what types of sins, what types of offenses can bring us into church discipline. First, sins that negatively affect the health, the unity, or the peace of the body or the reputation of Jesus Christ. For example, if you are unrepentant and your family is suffering under your abusiveness or your addictions, or if you, your favorite pastime is gossiping about and slandering other members of this body, then guess what? We're going to come talk to you and plead with you to repent. If you have an unbiblical sexual ethic and you're claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ, we're going to call you to repentance. And there are many, many other scenarios, obviously. So that's the first thing. That's the first thing, the, the, the things that negatively affect the health, unity, uh, the body, the reputation of Christ. But the next thing would be the public knowledge of the, the sin has to be considered. In other words, how blatant, how out there is this sin that's being committed? 1 Corinthians 5, very familiar passage. Paul confronts a church about the church there at Corinth about a man who's sleeping with his stepmom. And here's the deal. Wasn't a secret. They weren't trying to hide anything. Everyone in the church knew about it and was acting like it was no big deal. So listen to how Paul begins 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is, listen to this, not even tolerated among pagans. He's saying this is bad news. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He said, this should be breaking your heart, and you guys are celebrating. And then he says this, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, don't gloss over what just happened there. Notice here that Paul started with excommunication, and he skipped the previous steps that Jesus mentioned. Now, why on earth would he do that? Because... The public shame brought on the name of Christ by, by the sin. He says this is a sin, the kind of which is not even tolerated among the very most ungodly among them. 
He said, this is serious. And also the fact that there was no need for an investigation. Every single person in the church apparently knew what was happening. They were boasting about it. And the guy guilty of the sin wasn't even thinking about repentance. And so therefore, Paul said, no, we're going right to the end here. And he's poisoning the well. Get him out of the church. Thirdly, we consider the level of leadership in disciplined situations. James said that those who teach would be held to a more strict judgment. A leader who falls has incredible potential to bring shame to the name and the cause of Christ. Incredible uh, uh, potential for that. I'm going to tell you something that troubles me. It seems like in recent years, the greater celebrity of the pastor, usually nationally known figures, that when they fall and, and cause the unbelieving world to look and mock, the church almost always seems to respond almost immediately with like, oh, you know, we're all human, let's put this guy back in. And my response, even as someone who bears the weight of doing this and having to stand up here, I'm telling you, my response is always like, are you nuts? Are you nuts? Why would you put a guy right back in who has proven proven that he cannot uh, walk in the integrity that is required. Can he repent? Sure he can. Can he be valuable in the the body of Christ? Absolutely he can. But he's demonstrated that he cannot go right back to what he was doing. If you have a new convert, they might elicit greater understanding. But verified abuses by leaders in the church, and hear me clearly, as the leader of this church, should bring swift correction. Verified abuses should bring swift correction. Why do I say verified? Because 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it's supported by two or three witnesses. But if it is, and if there's a solid case, then correction should be swift. Leaders should be above reproach in questions of morality, integrity of all sorts, financial, sexual, relational, theological, just to name a few. And if they fail to be, the church should have mechanisms in place to address and correct the approach and remove the leader if necessary. Like the direct discipline of the Lord that we spoke of last week, a church with a strong commitment to loving, consistent discipline is a good thing. Do you hear me? When a church is committed to loving, consistent discipline, it is a good, healthy thing. It results in a church that has a clean conscience within its walls and and a good testimony outside its walls. Discipline is a sign of health. And discipline in the church, from the church, should never from anyone disintegrate into bullying or control or elitism. It should always be, like I said, it should be loving and humble. All All of those things should play into it, but it must be consistent. It must be present. Most problems, I'm telling you, are going to be resolved in phase one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he, re- if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Man, when that happens, oh my goodness. When that happens, it's a glorious, reinforcing thing to the unity of the body. Wonderful. However, some problems may have to escalate to phase two. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This also is a good thing as people stand together. The people in the body stand together for the sake of gospel truth, elevating the authority of God's word over all else. Sadly, heartbreakingly, some things may rise to phase three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Though it is painful. It can still be unifying as 
the body comes together to pray for and to cry for the wandering sheep that has left Jesus' fold. And a minute percentage, just a tiny little fraction of people that we love and that we care for may have to be put into phase four. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Though it's rare when this happens, as I said earlier, may we always pray for a corrective grace that sees people for whom Christ died quickly repent and be restored. So this morning we're going to come to the Lord's table like we always do, and I want you to come with hearts full of gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, for his glorious resurrection and for his triumphant ascension. And let's thank him for the fact that through his redemptive work, which we reflect on and we celebrate in the bread and in the cup, we who were far apart from each other, there was no, there was no rest, restorative unity before, but we who were far apart from each other have now been made into one body, red and yellow, black and white. Ephesians 2.14, I love this passage. It says this, it says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we have access in one spirit to the Father." So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Jesus was broken for a broken world, and that broken world... Those who believe became one united body in Christ Jesus. And and so why does this matter? What what does this verse have to do with church discipline? Well, one of the great joys of being one body together is the encouragement that we give each other to keep running our race. If you've never been at the brink of giving up and had somebody who loved Jesus come into your life and say, keep running, man, you've missed out. You've missed out. It's awesome when somebody comes alongside you and just fans the flame of faith that may be just flickering about to die in you. And they say, you can make it. You can do this. You can do it. The writer of Hebrews said that we should consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works and not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and to do so all the more as we see the day drawing near. At the heart of it, that's what mutual church discipline is all about. It's stirring each other up for the purpose of love, not because of hostility or division, but for the purpose of good works done in worship, not the dead works of sin and depravity. It's meeting together in generous community, not living separate selfish lives. It's encouraging each other, not slandering, not tearing each other down. And doing all this with increasing intensity as we see the day of our redemption approaching. Let's remember that because of Jesus, we're in this thing together. You can't get rid of me. I'm just You're going to have to deal with me throughout all eternity and me with you. We're in this thing together eternally. And let's remember that as we come celebrating to the Lord's table.